Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice with a news bonus. Some observations on that case down in Dallas County, Texas. The defendant, Amber Geiger, a Dallas police officer, shot and killed Botham Jean in his own apartment. And as I bet everybody out there knows, the jury came back finding her guilty of murder and handed out a sentence of 10 years. So I've got a few thoughts about this for you. Uh, Let's start with the sentence, because that was the end point of the trial, and it has caused a lot of controversy. I think a lot of people felt a bit dissatisfied with a 10-year sentence. The range on a murder sentence in Texas is anywhere from 5 to 99 years, and they have something very unusual in Texas. They have jury sentencing. And this is unusual. Uh, For the most part, in most states, juries decide guilt or innocence. Judges decide the sentence. So typically there would be a, if there is a verdict of guilty, the judge then postpones the sentencing for some period of weeks or even months to get a report on the defendant to decide the most appropriate sentence. And then they come back for a sentencing hearing and the judge pronounces a sentence. Now, the great exception to that usual practice is capital punishment, death penalty uh, litigation, uh, in which there are effectively two trials. There is first what they call the guilt phase, in which the guilt of the defendant is settled, and then the sentencing phase. Same jury hears facts on what the sentence should be, death or something less, like life without parole or some period of years. In Texas, and a handful of other states, uh, there is sentencing by juries. Uh, this, uh, this practice is not something that's common anywhere I have practiced, and I was a little surprised to learn about it myself. Uh, other states than Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Virginia have some form for some cases uh, of jury sentencing. It used to be also the case for some minor cases in Tennessee. I don't know if that is still true or not. Uh, so in Texas, the jury decides on a sentence. And here, uh, what they do in Texas, as I understand it, is at the beginning of the trial, the defendant makes an election, makes a choice about whether or not the sentence will be given by the jury or a judge. And given what I read, pretty much everybody decides jury. And that was obviously done here. The jury heard additional evidence after the guilty verdict and decided on that sentence of 10 years. Is that sentence too low. I suppose it depends on your perspective. Um, Certainly lots of people outside of the courtroom thought that that was a fairly low sentence. The prosecution in the case had actually asked for a sentence of 28 years, which is uh, not coincidentally exactly how old Mr. Gene would have been had he not been killed by former officer Geiger. Um, So a 10-year sentence seemed rather low to a lot of people. Uh, I watched the reaction of the Dallas County District Attorney. His name is John Cruzo. I I hope I've got that pronounced right. C-R-E-U-Z-O-T. And, um, you know, he was asked directly, did that seem like the sentence that was right or did he have any reaction to it? And he said, uh, well, obviously we had asked for more. Um, but he said, I have long given up trying to figure out why a jury does what it does or try to guess what it's going to do. Um, it was less than I thought it should be, but we respect the verdict absolutely. Um, 
So um, um, we'll return to that in a minute because there's more I want to say about uh, this sentencing process in uh, just a second. Um, I have heard the case discussed as a kind of turning point. Uh, a lot of punditry, some comments even by one of the family's lawyers, Lee Merritt, that this uh, case, its guilty verdict, uh, is something uh, very significant. Uh, who would have thought that this could happen in Texas, of all places? So many cases in which officers uh, have been acquitted let, or, or even not charged in the deaths of civilians, particularly people of color, black men who have been killed uh, at police hands. Uh, look, this one is different, and maybe this represents a turning point. I notice fewer people saying that now after the sentence than we're saying it after the verdict. But no matter, let's take that at face value. I want to tell you I disagree with that. Not that it couldn't be a turning point, not that it won't be. Nobody knows what the future holds, of course. But I think there's less to that than meets the eye. And I'll tell you why. This is not a case that is the same as most other police shooting cases. Even among the small number that get to trial, this is significantly different. The reason that I say that is because almost all police shooting cases turn on the question of the degree of the use of force. Was the force excessive. Uh, and the reason they turn on that is, of course, that police officers have a right, and even in some instances, a duty to use force to lawfully effectuate their lawful goals, to, to make the arrest, to take the person into custody. Police officers can use force. And sometimes uh, they can use deadly force. And of course, that's where things can have a very bad end. Uh, they can use deadly force when they face a deadly threat or where the defendant poses a deadly threat to others. Um, and so that is the major question in all of the other police cases that we have seen over the last five years, from Michael Brown and Ferguson all the way forward. Did the police officer use excessive force given the facts of the situation? And this is all governed by a Fourth Amendment constitutional law case called Graham versus Connor, in which the standard set by the Supreme Court in the 1980s is objective reasonableness. And the court goes out of its way to describe this as a fraught situation, the officer having to make a split-second decision. We shouldn't be second-guessing them. It should be, the question is, would a reasonable officer have done what this officer did, use that amount of force? And that is why we often in these cases have testimony about, I was uh, in fear for my life, says the officer. Well, that goes directly to the question of whether the amount of force was reasonable. What's so different here, and why I think this is not the same as the usual case, is that the, 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 uh, the degree of force was never in question. In fact, Officer Geiger testified from the stand in her own defense. She said, I shot to kill, or, or words to that effect, I shot with the goal of killing him because my life was obviously in danger. Now, but that wasn't the issue for decision. The issue of decision was something else. It was a defense called mistake of fact. Okay? This is a real thing. In fact, we learned it, my students and I, we did this in criminal law just two weeks ago, and every standard criminal law course goes over this. The idea, you know, it goes back to this old, old saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse. 
Right? You've often heard that, or sometimes everybody's heard that at one point or another. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And this generates discussion about two issues. Mistake of law, where the defendant is ignorant or makes a mistake about what the law is, and the defense of mistake of fact. And this was a case with a mistake of fact defense. Geiger wasn't disputing or, or saying anything about the level of force, and neither was the prosecution. What this was about was the grave mistake she made that brought her into Baltham Jean's apartment thinking, according to her, that it was her own. She mistook his apartment, his floor of that building, for hers, went into his apartment, thought there was an intruder in her apartment. She thought that's where she was. That was her story. Now, to have a valid mistake of fact defense, uh, you have to first ask yourself, what kind of crime do we have? What, what's the offense? The offense here is murder under Texas law, and that is what we call a general intent crime. It does not include any specific extra mens rea or state of mind, like with intent to commit a felony, with intent to rob, nothing like that. It just said, whoever shall intentionally kill another human being is guilty of murder. With a general intent crime, there are two questions in a mistake of fact defense. Question number one, is this mistake honestly made or a mistake in good faith? Does the jury actually believe that she believed that she was actually mistaken? All right, that's only question number one, though. Question number two is, was that a reasonable mistake? Could a reasonable person have made that mistake? And that was where she lost the case. Or put another way, that was where the prosecution defeated that defense. Because the jury, even if they believed she was sincere in describing her mistake, they did not believe that the mistake was reasonable. How do we know this? It was the prosecution's case from the get-go that this mistake was not reasonable, that she was distracted by conversation on her phone and she wasn't paying attention. And there was a big mat in front of Botham Jean's apartment door that was not there with hers, that the door was unlocked, that the numbering or the lettering on the door was in a completely different uh, typeface or, or appearance. All of those things made the mistake unreasonable. And then, of course, she didn't follow the proper procedures and her training. She went into the apartment and put herself in danger instead of, according to the training and the policy, waiting outside and calling for backup. That made the mistake unreasonable. So with that, it's a different kind of case altogether. A jury is going to be able to react to it differently instead of saying, hmm, was the officer just reasonable and fearing for his or her life? The usual question, they ask, well, was all this stuff reasonable, this kind of mistake? It's a different question. So I'm not saying this can't be some kind of a turning point. I'm certainly not underplaying the difference in the jury. The composition of the jury was very different. Two white people, all the rest people of color. Maybe that is something that makes a big difference. But will this be the beginning of some kind of trend overall? I wouldn't go there for the reasons I've just said. And because each case will stand on its own facts, I don't see this kind of thing as a national trend uh, subject. All right, so that's my take 
on that. Um, last thing I want to talk about, I want to come back to the sentencing because this is very significant. I'm sure mostly everybody knows that beyond just the 10-year sentence, something very significant and different happened at this sentencing proceeding. In this sentencing proceeding, uh, people spoke um, uh, about what they thought the sentence should be. And among those who spoke, um, uh, one of them was Botham Jean's brother, uh, the dead man's brother. And he, uh, like the rest of Botham Jean's family, and Botham Jean himself, very religious. And he came up, and among the things he said was, you know, beyond the loss and the hurt and so forth, that he wanted to forgive Officer Geiger, that he didn't hate her, that he feels love for her, hopes that, uh, that her, you know, doesn't want bad things to happen to her, uh, wants her to give her life to Christ, things like that. And then he says to the judge, may I give her a hug? May I give her a hug? And the judge gives permission, and the two of them, Mr. Gene's brother and the officer who killed Mr. Gene's brother, embrace in the courtroom tightly, and they weep into each other. And they were not the only ones crying. The judge was seen wiping her own eyes. And then something else happened. The judge embraced Officer Geiger, too. And a number of the other people in the courtroom seemed to give very solicitous sorts of attention to her. And I just, I have to say two things, right? There's much you could say about this, and a lot of people have commented on it. Number one, Mr. Gene's forgiveness of Officer Geiger is for him and him alone. And to the extent that he is speaking for his family, that is theirs alone. They are victims. They are entitled to express themselves and to have whatever view of the crime and its aftermath and the perpetrator uh, of the crime that works for them, that they feel is appropriate, that goes along with their values and beliefs. And if they choose to extend forgiveness in this moment, well, that's theirs to do. We can all think of how we would react in a situation like that. Uh, how could I, I could never do that? You might be saying to yourself, my God, I mean, you know, you, someone's loved one is torn away and, and murdered. And it was a murder. She was convicted by this point. Don't forget, how could you forgive that person? Well, they have chosen. He has chosen to do that. And I'll tell you something. My own life tells me why they would do this beyond any religious convictions. You know, I haven't ever suffered anything like what they have. I don't mean that at all. But I have, you know, I've been up against some things in my own life, things that have made me very angry at one person or another. And I'll tell you something. Staying very angry with somebody, hating somebody, I hadn't experienced it that many times in my own life. I guess I'm just lucky that way. But when I have, I notice how it has stayed with me and, you know, dominated my thoughts and, and directed me in certain ways. And there has come times, it, it has come late in my life, I must say, when I've realized that if I don't give this up one way or another... I am going to be at the mercy of this person who mistreated me forever, maybe. And I have chosen to walk away from 
my own feelings of hatred or anger or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's through forgiving the person. Maybe it's through just deciding it wasn't significant in the first place. But I get that. I get that, that if this is what it takes for them to move on or to feel complete or to be consistent with their own values and religious beliefs, I totally get that. And as I said, it is theirs to do. But I feel something very different about what the judge did. The way the judge embraces the convicted defendant, I just have to say, I've been through hundreds of cases as a lawyer. I have watched hundreds of sentencings, and I have never seen anything like this. Never. Now, let's all face it. Judges are human. They can get carried away with the emotion of the moment. And if they do this at the wrong time, you could have a reversal, you know, uh, for, for a defendant. That's not going to happen here because it was all to the defendant's benefit, if you want to say that. But the judge is a human being, so she's allowed to have emotions, right? She was crying up on the bench. I've seen that happen before. I know that that's possible. But for her to embrace a convicted defendant is at best highly unusual. And there was something about that. Maybe it was just the appearance. Maybe it was more. But I can't ever remember seeing anything like that. And it left a lot of people, and I have to say, I felt a little of this myself, wondering, would you be doing this for the usual defendant, a person who was a person of color, convicted of a more usual crime, even something they did not mean? When was the last time, Judge, you got off the bench and embraced a convicted murderer? You know, you know they're there. It'll all be all right. We're all behind you. I mean, who knows what was in her mind? But man, that didn't hit me all that well. And I, you know, my reaction was mild compared to what I saw on some of the social media platforms. So, uh, uh, I mean, as I've thought back over my entire career, I have seen judges say to a convicted defendant, somebody that they had sentenced, good luck to you, uh, when a defendant says, I'm going to change my life. This is a turning point for me. This is different. Okay, well, good luck, Mr. Smith. I hope it works out that way. Please don't come back again. You might even remember our interview with Judge Kevin Sharp. I think that was episode 55. Judge Sharp is now a former federal judge, but he told the story of of presiding over a trial of a young man uh, charged with a very serious drug crime and having to sentence this man to what was effectively a life sentence. He would never get out of prison. And Judge Sharp saying to himself, number one, I can't do this anymore. But number two, uh, I wish there was something I could do for you, but I just can't. And, uh, you know, a human reaction for sure, but a hug? I mean... There was something about that that was both so unusual and it did seem to me maybe inappropriate that I just have to say it. There it is. That's it. That is your news bonus. The trial of Amber Geiger, the Dallas police officer convicted for murdering Botham John. She'll serve just 10 years, if you want to look at it like that, or 10 years, if that's what you think. She'll serve 10 years in prison, according to the jury's sentence. You can always go to our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, to find all of our news bonuses, our interview episodes with some of the most interesting and controversial people in the criminal justice sphere, 
and all of our features. Remember, we're now a listener-supported effort, so please join us by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>